You're listening to an episode of the Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life podcast with your host, Kim Over. This is Kim, and welcome to the 122nd episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. If you like today's episode, be sure to leave me a review wherever you listen to your podcasts and share with your friends on social media. Just don't forget to tag me at Olver International. Today, I'm thrilled to have a recognized parenting expert and coach here to talk with you about her ideas about parenting. When you want to raise happy, healthy, and productive kids that are prepared for whatever life throws at them today, Elizabeth Stitt, Coaches Foundation 2021 Coach of the Year and founder of Joyful Parenting Coaching, is your go-to parenting coach and expert. Kids don't come with an operating manual. So if you think you're supposed to know how to parent or that it's built into your DNA, that's just not true. With over 50,000 hours of working with kids and parents to support her in the work, Elizabeth has seen all types of kids and all types of families. With her warmth, wit, and wisdom, Elizabeth supports parents through workshops, webinars, and one-on-one coaching all around the world. Welcome, Elizabeth, and thank you so much for agreeing to talk with us about a topic I know you're quite skilled in. Skilled in and very passionate about. So it's always a thrill to get to share what I know with other families. Great. That's awesome. Elizabeth, what brought you to the work you're doing today? How did you get to be a parenting expert? Thanks so much for asking, Kim. I taught for 25 years. And in that time, I saw an enormous shift, uh, first in my kids, and then in the parents. So in the kids, it shows up as, in when I started teaching in 1990, if you asked a seventh grader in 1990, and I was teaching a class called Quest, Skills for Adolescent Living, and so mm. we were having a lot of conversations about kids and things. Uh, hey, Kim, what do you want to be when you grow up? You know, the answer was something like, oh, I want to be, I want to be a Britney Spears. Movie star. I want to be a movie star. Did you want to be a movie star, Kim? Of course. Doesn't everybody? Of course. Right. Or, you know, I want to be an Olympic gold skater. And we didn't say, well, you know, the chances of doing that are one point, blah, 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 blah. No, we would go like, hey, that's fabulous. Have you been skating for a long time? And, you know, at that point, your seventh grader might look at you earnestly and go, uh-huh, since last fall. <laughs> and you didn't, wouldn't look at the kid and go like, kid, you're nuts. If you've only been skating since last fall, you aren't going anywhere with skating, Right. You would look at the kid and you'd go like, fabulous. If you're ever in a competition, I would love to come see you. End of conversation. In 1990, we did not think it was necessary to push 12-year-olds towards what they needed to be doing already. And let me be clear about that. We in the United States did not think that that was necessary because in other parts of the world, kids were already being kind of sorted out on tracks and being told that, you know, this is where you have to do. But in the United States, we didn't, we still thought 12 was just on the brink 
of becoming an adult and was just on the brink of exploring who do I want to be when I grow up and that it was perfectly okay to have pie-in-the-sky dreams still. Flash forward to 2014, which was the last spring I was in the classroom. Now, and I'll preface this by saying I live in Silicon Valley, so maybe this is like the intensified version of this answer. But, you know, I've spoken all over the country, and I've spoken to parents all over the country, and I know that the trend was going and moving everywhere. You know, what do you want to be when you grow up? And the first thing you'd get would be kind of this big... <sighs> with the little shoulders going <gasps> up and down and then very earnest expression. Well, I don't know if I want to major in computer science and minor in business or major in business and minor in computer science. But, well, I think I should go to work for a big company first, like Google or Facebook. Uh, but I, then I want to do a Facebook, uh, uh, a startup for sure. And but that would be followed by like another big, like, okay. And you could see the weight of the world sitting on this kid's shoulders. This awareness that at 12, this was going to be a long, steep mountain to climb. But this was my mountain. This was what I was supposed to be doing. And I used to just, so my first reaction was to be angry with the parents. My first reaction was like, what are these parents doing getting in in the way of my kid feeling expansive and feeling that the world was their oyster and feeling that anything is possible and that it's so exciting to be 12 on the brink of all this possibility. My last three years, I was part-time in the classroom still, and then I had a job called Outreach Teacher, which was the school district's way of not paying a school counselor, because basically it was being the school counselor. And it meant that for some hours of the day, I was not scheduled into doing anything. If I wasn't actively doing a like a, a, what we call a student study team meeting, I was sitting in my office and I was looking at kids' files and checking up on them. And it meant that when an adult walked into the office and said, I want to talk to the principal, the office manager would say, well, what's that about? And if it were anything social, emotional, and not sort of strict school policy, she would say, well, principal isn't available right now. Why don't we see if Mrs. Stitt can talk to you? And so in this way, I started sitting down with parents, not just in the hurried parent-teacher conference, like, okay, this is what I need to tell you, what do you need to tell me, great, next person kind of way, but just in a, what can I do for you kind of way. And I hadn't yet had my coach's training, but fortunately, I think I knew enough to say, well, tell me more. What else? What else is, you know, how's this showing up for this kid at home? What else? And, you know, the parent would come in with the tip of the iceberg. And 45 minutes later, what I would have was not just a picture of the kid, but also this picture of the parent's isolation, overwhelm, 
anxiety, and guilt about their kids. And I realized, I mean, my daughter was herself only, you know, she was herself 14. So I was only 14. I wasn't that far ahead. And partly, of course, I had the advantage of coming to parenting, having learned on everybody else's children before my child was born. So uh, I don't think I ever experienced parenting in quite the way that a lot of people were experiencing it. But talking to parents was making me realize that many, many parents were coming to parenting with very little hands-on experience with children. And increasingly living in a society where the standard of parenting had changed from raise a reasonably decent human being and keep them safe, right? That's that whole thing that your mom used to say of, if you're not bleeding, I don't want to see you go outside. Right. Right. Well, parents today don't feel they can say that. Parents today feel that they're it. They're the bottom line. They are responsible for every aspect of that child's well-being and development. And that the child better be thriving at the very highest levels in every moment from the first breath they take. One of the things I found was that parents take a single data point and they immediately see like, whoa, that data point, that we're off track. We're not going to get to Stanford or Harvard now. And that instead of seeing childhood as this very up and down curve or a very stop and start, right? if we really think about ourselves as learners, as adults, we'll probably recognize that our learning still is characterized by run, 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 fall down, uh-oh, pick myself up, try it again kind of learning. But somehow we forget that. Like somehow our memory smooths out what was hard for us. And so we think of our life as a much smoother trajectory than it actually was. My right. daughter, who is now 25, 26, excuse me, has just gotten her first post-grad school job. But the sort of six to nine months of looking for that job have been heavy for her. It is hard to get a new job. It's scary to be in that place where you don't know your next thing. I think for her, too, it's the first time that she hasn't had to apply on paper in the way that you apply for, um, right. for, for college and grad school. And I remember that feeling. Like, as again, we're talking about our choices and what triggers us. Like, I was getting triggered as she was going through this stage because I had smoothed out in my mind the anxiety that I felt in the time that it took me to get my first real teaching job. I'd, I had lots of different little teaching experiences while I was waiting to get my real job. But I had forgotten how much everything felt like it was hanging in the balance. Like, did I really want this? Did I, was I going to go that way? And 
and I, my daughter and I, she's so much better at clearing out her gunk than I am. We had this moment where it was kind of like, mom, like you're making me more anxious than I already feel. Like, what are you doing? And I was like, oh, okay, sorry. I need to back way off here and give you some space to view you because I think I already said this. I'm not sure. But if I didn't say it to you, I've said it to other people. And that is we do our best parenting when we just get out of the way. Yep. If I said it before, it bears repeating. We do our best parenting when we get out of the way. I started getting in the way of her. And I was bringing all my old anxiety that I had long since smoothed out in my mind of that precipice of what it feels like to getting that first big professional job. That's a big milestone. Yeah. So back to 2014, when I'm hearing parents, 2013, 2014, hearing parents and realizing what they are experiencing and how different that is from what I knew parenting could be. I just kept thinking, it doesn't have to be this hard. It's always going to be demanding because it's in the moment and it demands your presence and it demands your truth. It demands you knowing yourself and that's hard. But a lot of parenting is just a skill. And we used to learn it socially in multi-aged groups organically as we grew up. But the fact of the matter is, is that we have stopped spending time together in groups at all. And we've especially stopped spending time in multi-aged groups. So we're not getting the organic parenting education that we used to get. So are you saying that you think parenting might be harder today than it used to be? Absolutely. Parenting is, in my mind, without a doubt, harder than it used to be. I give a talk called Four Challenges Modern Parents Face that keep them feeling anxious and guilty and overwhelmed about their kids. And I would love to just share briefly, I can't do the full talk, but, but can, I, can I just outline the four reasons? Sure. Okay. The number one reason is that society supports business. Society does not support families. And you might say, well, that was always true. But the fact of the matter is, is that we used to have more systems and routines and institutions that did support family life. Even the concept of nine to five, right? The, the idea that there was a clear start time and a clear end time to the work day meant that families had a clear time when it was family time and kids had a clear time when it was school time. And for the most part, sort of between six and eight o'clock, there was this kind of sacred block of time where we weren't, you know, the PTA meeting didn't start at eight. The choir rehearsal didn't start till eight. Kids didn't have a million extra activities and tutelage. So you didn't have the dinner hour interrupted in the same way. And we didn't have phones in our pocket that went off. And I don't know what it was like in your house, but in my house, the phone was attached to the wall. Absolutely. <laughs> stand there to answer it. And the assumption was that if somebody called between six and eight or somebody called at dinner time, that it was a telemarketer. We did have those. If somebody really needed you, if it were an emergency, they would call back. 
And so you never needed to answer the phone between six and eight. If you were at the table and that phone was ringing, you ignored it. You just kept talking. You talked right through it. And of course, it wasn't in the dining room. It was in the kitchen somewhere away. And so you just ignored it. That in itself was this kind of bracket that said, we are a family. We're sitting down to eat and we're going to eat our dinner together. And the research is super clear. It's not causation. It's correlated research, right? That says the correlation between families that sit down and eat together four to five times a week have kids who thrive on all kinds of measures at a higher level. They get better grades. They're more likely to be involved in sports. They start using drugs and alcohol later. They start having sexual relationships later. I mean, just all kinds of things that we know that are good for getting kids through the tumultuous teen years and on into early adulthood. That's right. Right? Yeah. What does that look like today? We know what dinner looks like today. First of all, I can't tell you how many families, oh, we'd love to do family dinners. It just doesn't work. We just can't figure it out. Or like, oh, I'm so proud of myself, Elizabeth. We've carved out Thursday nights. That is our night to have dinner together. Mm. That's the night we're not going to let anything happen. Because what's going on? Classes, events, meetings, work meetings at Google. I lived in in Mountain View, which was the uh, Google headquarters. At Google, you are permitted to say no to a meeting. I can't remember if it's after 6 p.m. or after 7 p.m. So you can schedule a meeting at 6 or 7 or 8 p.m., but you are permitted, if you're a member of the team, you're permitted to say no to the meeting. Wow. But can you imagine the peer pressure, Kim? Yeah, I can. Right? And the promotion opportunities, right? You think, oh, if I don't go, what does that mean? If you don't go, the somebody else, you know, I want to have an input on this. This project's important to me. I care about my job. I want to have an input on this decision. So we're putting parents in untenuous situations all the time. They truly want to be there for their kids. But we are asking them to have to really choose between their parenting role, their parenting hat, and every other hat that they might wear. So how can we ask parents to be fully self-actualized adults if they can only have A or B? They can only be a fully devoted parent or they can be any of those other things. The two pieces don't fit together. It is not clear. That's one reason that parenting is harder because society is no longer setting up limits for us to actually have parenting life within. The second reason it's harder is a double-edged sword because it's also kind of the reason that it's easier. We live in very heterogeneous communities. And on the one hand, that's wonderful because it means that parenting can show up in a lot of different ways and be okay. We're not being put into little boxes of who we should be and how we should be doing things. I fully believe that we benefit by just acknowledging that families come in all different shapes and sizes. On the other hand, it means that we're alone in our box. Or instead of trying to fit into one big box, we're in our own box. 
So if I'm trying to make a pretty simple decision, like what time should a four-year-old go to bed? And I'm looking to one side of my house, you know, I'm looking to one neighbor and there's not putting their kids into bed until eight or nine o'clock. And I'm looking at the other side and their kid is boom, in bed by seven, come hell or high water. That doesn't help to guide me in my decision. It says, oh, great. Anytime between seven and, <laughs> and whatever. And that means every single parenting decision I make is on me. I used to be able to go to Dr. Spock and Dr. Spock was the Bible, really had one parenting book and we all read the book and we all knew what to do because we were tending to live in communities of people that were more like us. We were maybe even tending to gather together, say at church and have that social hour every week to check in with each other. We just shrugged our shoulders and said, okay, great. That's what we do. Now we have to make all those decisions by ourselves. And how do we make it? We sit down at the internet and we do a Google search. And we say, what time should a four-year-old go to bed? And we get 28 different opinions. And each and every one of them is expressed in language which suggests that if you don't do it this way, you're ruining your kid for life. Harvard's off the table. Stanford, <laughs> no way, right? And that's just what time to put this four-year-old to bed, which is just one of the thousands of questions that we have. So it's no wonder that we're feeling anxious because after we read 28 opinions, even if we pick one, there's always this question in our mind of like, wait a minute, did I really pick the best one? Should I go something else? So we get into paralysis mode. And when we're in paralysis mode, we don't make any decisions. And then the kids are running the house because they're making the decisions. And that doesn't work either. So I have alluded to this in my jokes about Stanford and Harvard. But the third reason that parenting is harder is because we are, instead of parenting the kid in front of us, we're parenting an ideal. The standards for parenting have been pushed up so high that there is this gold standard of what we're supposed to be doing as a parent. And the result is what I call the checklist child. Instead of parenting an individual kid and being present with a little guy who's in front of us every day and just trying to respond to how do I show up for you in the moment, we've got this checklist of what we think we need to be achieving as a parent and how we can show the world that we're doing our job is with those numbers. And it shows up like this. Sometimes I do in the old days before COVID, I was doing workshops in person. And at the end of a workshop, there'd be a crowd of parents who wanted to talk to me. And they'd kind of get in front of me. And the first thing they would go was like, oh, my kid is wonderful, Kim. She knows all of her letters and she can count to a hundred and she can add any number between one and 10. I would get the checklist. Then the but would come, and the but would be something like, but she's, if she's going to be an axe murderer because she's having these tantrums where she's spitting at us, she's throwing things at us, she's biting us, she is doing all these things. But before they felt that they could share with me, they had to first give me the report card, right? Here's the public proclamation of how my child's doing. Here's where she is meeting all the measures on the checklist, and now my voice is going to get quieter and I'm going to lean in and I'm going to say, 
but this is what I'm really scared about. And this is what I'm really worried about. So the pressure for parents to only show that checklist and to only show what's good means that they don't get to be vulnerable. They don't get to be open. They don't get to be curious. I have a series of questions for parents as a way of getting to know them where they just are evaluating their family on a scale of one to 10. Like, how much is this showing? What are you seeing in your household? How much are you showing up? And one of the line items is actually, I have a trusted source that I can go to for parenting feedback that doesn't make me feel bad about my parenting. One to 10. One, nope, not at all. 10, yes, I'm rock solid. I've got some resources. Most people give me about a three. I'm not surprised. Yeah, you're not surprised, but isn't that sad? It's sad. It's really sad. It's really sad. It means that we are carrying this whole burden by ourselves. And remember, because there's no Dr. Spock, there are 28 million opinions, that burden has increased. It's not, yeah. There's not one recipe to follow. We are just carrying the whole thing. A parent came in to talk to me in one of these sessions and they were saying their daughter, their seventh grader, was coming home and crying after school every day, and mostly about the science teacher. Now, the science teacher was a fabulous teacher, superior teacher, loved her, but she was tough. She was tough for the kids. And I knew the kids, why the kids might be going home and crying about her. But my first question to the parent was, well, what are you hearing from the other parents? This was when I was early on in doing this, because she looked at me like the horns of the devil had sprouted from my head. And she was just like, yeah, it's a stick. You don't act, talk to other parents. You don't tell other parents your 12-year-old is coming home and crying. You can talk about the soccer goal that was made. You can talk about the science fair award. You can talk about the awesome summer camp where she was going to get to be the star in the musical. But you don't talk about the scary stuff, the dark underbelly, the fear. And that makes everything feel much worse. Because we have no reality check, right? If you know that half a dozen seventh grade girls are going home, and boys too, believe me, boys still go home and cry in seventh grade. If you know that it's half a dozen kids who are going home and crying, you go like, oh, yeah, that teacher, she's tough. And what a steam to let out. Mm-hmm. And we're going to get through this. As a parent, and how you show up for that feels completely different. The last reason, the fourth reason that parenting is so much harder today is that all these other reasons result in kids not getting to be kids. Kids don't have time to play anymore. Kids don't have the developmental space to do what they need to do, which is to just go and explore the world and to spend time with each other without a lot of supervision so that they can practice the kinds of social and emotional interactions that they need in order to become mature adults. So to a large extent, they're not becoming mature adults. They look at the rates of anxiety and depression and the way that they are skyrocketing. Anxiety and depression is not our most mature response. If we are feeling grounded and clear and we have the social emotional skills that we need, to both recognize our own challenges and to know how to deal with other people, we are much, much, much less prone to anxiety and depression. 
a lot of that skill building would happen while kids play. Plus a lot of the steam release. So we asked them to come in and to really push themselves and to work on something hard like long division. Long division is a very cognitively demanding task. Not a natural task, if you ask me. <laughs> very hard task. But we sit and we work for 40 minutes and we work hard on that. And then we get to go run outside for 20 minutes and really play. First thing is that in schools, we're so worried that our kids aren't going to get to the levels that they need to get. We're back to basics. It's reading, writing, and arithmetic. And it's maximize our work time, which means a lot of schools are now characterized by maybe a 15-minute brunch in the morning, they call it, and maybe a 45-minute lunch, maybe a 40-45 minute lunch. And that's it. And the school day, when I went to school, school started at 9 when I went to elementary school, and we got out at 2.30. Morning recess, lunch, and an afternoon recess. Now schools are much more likely to start at 8, 8.15, maybe 30, and not get out till 2.45, 3. And you might think, well, what's the difference, 9 to 2.30 versus 8 to 3? Well, that's a lot of difference. And you've got less recess time, less lunch time. That is a lot of difference. Let's just think about this, Kim. Imagine that I've now made 25 hours in the day, and now every afternoon you have an extra hour to not work more, but to truly relax, to meditate, to draw, to do an arts and craft, to do something that restores you, that you love doing, that is not about moving forward in your business or taking care of other people. Can't you imagine that the quality of your life would go way up? It would be amazing. I get so happy when one of my clients cancels, not because I don't want to talk to them, but it's like the hour, the gift of an hour of time is extraordinary. Yes, yes. And we have robbed our children of that gift. A lot of our kids are going to aftercare. And here's the irony, Kim. I've got parents who are, are really concerned because, well, I, I, you know, right now my kid's just in the school aftercare and, or the YMCA aftercare, and I, you know, I would, I'd like to be able to get them into this program or that program. It's not happening. And it's like, uh uh-uh, uh, take a deep breath. I love the YMCA because it's mostly run by kids in their 20s and their early 20s. And you know what? What's great about that? They're not working super, super hard. They are not trying to regulate your kids. And to have them being be constructive every minute of the time. The, the ratio of young adult to little kid, it's too high in the kid's favor. And so it does mean that it's possible that this might be the one place where your kids are getting some runaround, unsupervised, no agenda time. But the kids whose parents are really, really getting it right have their kids have it scheduled into a different activity. Even if it's fun. It's still supervised and regulated and your attention is being demanded and a certain kind of behavior is being demanded. It's not relaxing. It's not, I get to choose in the moment. And so we are training our children not to know how to choose because we are making every choice for them. And because we are being run off of this checklist ourselves, we don't feel free to make choices. Or if we do, we have to be guilty about it or we have to make a joke about it, right? Yeah, that's so right. We're going to choose to say, yeah, guess what? You don't want to go to skating? 
don't have to go to skating. Not like it's the, you know, if you don't go to skating, that's it for Harvard. Yeah, right. <laughs> my, my daughter was in a, in a choir and it was the one serious thing she did. We had a lot of talks about before you say yes to this, Julie, you have to understand that this isn't something I can give you a choice on or you will be choosing that you don't want it. Right? You're allowed two absences for whatever reason. So that includes sickness, that includes everything else. So this is the one night a week, and I was did a pretty good job at not having her scheduled into things. But she wanted to sing, and she, she wouldn't sing in the school choir because even as a seven-year-old, like she didn't feel like the quality was high enough. She who actually has an ear, unlike me, I, I sang off tune. and I love to sing, but I sang off tune until high school. But that's the way so many of these things are structured. That if you don't show up, like you, you, if you're not making that commitment, you're absent two times, you're out. High pressure. Very high pressure. And come on, you're seven and you're learning how to sing. Fortunately, we didn't get sick or we didn't have a family emergency or something else. So I didn't have to sit down and have that conversation with her where it's like, look, sweetheart, I know you love to sing. But for X, Y, or Z, we're not going to make it. So if they kick us out, they kick us out. And I'm okay with that. Because whatever else I'm choosing in the moment is more important. And you can sing next semester. Or you can sing in a different choir. There are tons of different ways to sing. We can have sing parties in the shower. That's okay, too. You don't have to get it all right now. Mm -hmm. Okay, so these are the four reasons that parenting truly is harder than it used to be. Wow. That is so good. And I thank you so much for going into such detail. Unfortunately, we've reached the end of our time. So what I'd like to ask is if you'd be interested in coming back next season when I do parenting again, and maybe we could finish up the rest of these questions, because I would love to have you back. It'll be 10 months from now. So this is June. It will be April of next year, but I'll mark it down in my calendar and I'll give you a call if you're available. I'd love to talk to you again. I would love to do it. <laughs> do you have anything coming up you could tell our audience about that they might be able to participate in? Thank you so much for asking, Kim. As it happens, I do. On July 30th at okay. 1 p.m. Pacific time, I am giving a workshop called How to Set Your Kids Up for Success So You Don't Need Consequences and What Consequences to Give If You Do Need Them. Oh, I like that. Nice. Also, I think you have a book. Could you tell us about that and where we could find it? I do have a book. It's called Parenting as a Second Language, and it's found on Amazon or on my website. And it's based on the idea that if you were not modeled and you didn't grow up in a household where effective parenting was modeled, that's okay. Parenting is a skill. It can be taught and learned and practiced. It doesn't mean that you are doomed to parent like your parents parented. You can make different choices. Each chapter ends with a little exercise for parents to do. It's a very anecdotal, chatty book. So it's a quick read. You don't have to read it in order. Parenting as a Second Language. Awesome. And that's available in bookstores and Amazon everywhere? It is mostly available on Amazon. All right. Terrific. And if people wanted to contact you for more information, how could they do that? My name, Elizabeth Stitt, and that's Elizabeth with an S. Do it with a Z. You won't get very far. <laughs> the website is www.elizabethstitt.com. 
And the email is the same, Elizabeth with an S at elizabethstitt.com. And Stitt is S-T-I-T-T. Can you imagine teaching middle school with a name like Mrs. Stitt? Uh, no, but I'm sure you had a lot of fun with it. And I will put all of that in the show notes. So the audience will be able to get that pretty easily. So I want to thank you and tell you how much I appreciate you taking the time to join us today, Elizabeth, to talk about your awesome approach to parenting. I just know our audience will find your information helpful. You are super welcome. As I said, it is one of my favorite things to talk about because I know that we can make such a difference for our kids. Yeah. Well, thank you again. It was my pleasure. And I look forward to next season when I have you back. Thanks so much. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Kim. Yeah. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast and remember to leave a review and share with your connections on social media. I hope you'll join me next week when I'll be changing the topic from parenting to leadership and interviewing Dr. Patricia Roby. I'm looking forward to it. Talk with you then. This has been another thought-provoking episode of Life Equals Choices, Choices Equal Life. To listen to past episodes, please visit our website at lifeequalschoices.com or listen wherever you download your podcast. And don't forget, remember to subscribe.